Hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. You know, a few weeks ago, I preached about the wholeness in Christ that's available to us through our belief in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. If you haven't heard that message, you can find it on our website. I won't re-preach it for you again today, but just as a quick review, we studied a more comprehensive definition of what it means to be saved. One of our guiding set of verses came from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, which says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And we compared those verses to Mark chapter 5, where we found the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. After she reached out by faith and touched the hem of the garment of Jesus, verse 34 says, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The word saved in Ephesians chapter 2 and made you well in Mark 5 are both translated from the same Greek word, sozo. Not only does our belief in Jesus bring us eternal life, but it also makes a way for abundant life on the earth, including healing from sickness and deliverance from the effects of sin and the enemy. We were healed at the cross, and by faith we pray for the shed blood of Jesus to be applied to our physical bodies in the identical way that we apply it to our spirits to receive eternal life. Sickness is not your cross to bear. Belief is the key to entering the kingdom of God, and it is belief that unlocks all of the benefits of the kingdom thereafter. It's the center point of John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus died for the whole world, but not everyone is saved. That requires our belief. Often people who are wrestling with believing will ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? Listen, God is not sending anyone to hell. He's not forcing anyone into hell. He's the one providing the way of escape, and it's available for everyone. Because of sin, we, will, we were all born spiritually dead. But God, in his great love and mercy made a way to to avoid eternal separation through his son. He offers us life. Jesus was so serious about creating a path to eternal life that he submitted himself to the torture of the cross. It was like he was saying, over my dead body are you going to hell. But there are many who decline the offer and essentially step over his body to go their own way that leads to destruction. But don't mistake that for God's will. It's his will that none would perish, but he doesn't force us to believe. He didn't create us as robots who were forced to love him because that wouldn't be real love. True love requires choice to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, despite all the other choices the world offers. It's why God put the tree that shouldn't be eaten of in the middle of the Garden of Eden. It's easy to say, God, I love you when there are no other options. But true love can only be demonstrated in the company of other options. Imagine, for example, if I were the only man on earth. It would have been easy then for my wife Chantel to say to me, I love you, you're the only one for me. Well, no kidding, if I'm the only one available. 
But the beauty of our marriage vows was for her to essentially say to me, I had other options, but I chose you to the exclusion of all others. It's the same in our confession of faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. I have other options. I could choose another path, but Jesus, I believe in you as the only way. Matthew 7 and 13 says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Jesus is the gate. It's a narrow gate, but trust me, everyone can fit through. Only believe. We don't just recite a prayer to accept Jesus. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You know, most of you will know this. I have attended this, this church my whole life. My mom brought me to church in the womb, and I've never left. <laughs> For 26 of those years, Pastor Merv Switzer was the lead pastor here at the church. As I was thinking more about this idea of really believing, I remembered a story that he would often tell. You know, in the 1800s, there was a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin who stretched a rope across a portion of Niagara Falls to walk from the Canadian side to the U.S. side and back. And he would often add variations into his act. One time he stopped in the middle with a camera and he took a picture, and another time he, he pushed a wheelbarrow. First, he pushed the wheelbarrow empty and then weighed it down and walked out again back and forth with it another time. The crowd went crazy with excitement and, shout, and he shouted back to them, how many of you believe that I could cross the tightrope with a man in the wheelbarrow? The crowd roared, yes, we believe you can do it. I guess there was one particularly boisterous man in the crowd cheering, so Blondin pointed him out and asked you, do you believe that I could take a man across in this wheelbarrow? And the man screamed back, yes, yes, I believe. So Blondin said, great, get in. You see, it's really easy to say that you believe, but do you really believe when push comes to shove? Life will bring circumstances to test our belief. Do you believe that God wants to heal the sick? Then get ready for God to bring sick people across your path. Those types of tests happened in a variety of ways to those who followed Jesus during his ministry. They acted like they believed until there was a moment of testing, and then many would fall away. In fact, by the time Jesus hung on the cross, it was down to just his mother, his aunt, John the Beloved, and a couple of other Marys, the Bible says, with a small smattering of people watching from a distance. Our belief in Jesus will similarly be tested many times over the course of our lives. Will we continue to be found at the foot of the cross, or will we fall away? I hope that doesn't cause fear to rise in your heart, it should be a reason to be thankful that God gives us opportunities to reaffirm our faith and our belief in him. Those are chances to confirm that the things we say align with what we really believe in our hearts and allow us to continue to grow up and mature in our relationship with him as we make the right choice to keep jumping in the wheelbarrow, if you will. You know, since we had so much fun drilling down into the word saved and believed, there is another word in the verses from Ephesians 2 that I want us to give the same attention today. It's the word grace. I'll read the verses again for you. It said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. 
for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The word grace is translated from the Greek word charis. It's Strong's word 5485, and its definition includes goodwill, loving kindness, favor, of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. You know, often when we talk about the grace of God, we typically limit it only to our salvation experience. I understand, of course, why this happens. The message of Jesus offering a free gift of life uh, to us who are spiritually dead is overwhelming. There are no strings attached to his offer. It's not a loan with a, you know, a big balloon payment at the end to be made down the road. It's simply God extending his loving kindness towards us to be set free from the penalty of our sin. But as we see from that definition of grace or charis, it's not only God exerting his holy influence to turn us towards Christ, but also his grace, it keeps us, it strengthens us, it increases our faith and knowledge and empowers us to exercise our Christian virtues. You know, another way to say that last part is to say that it's his grace that empowers us to live up to his holy standard. We are unable to accomplish holy living by our own strength. In the same way that we were unable to earn our salvation through right living, we are similarly unable to earn an ability to behave as Christians through right living. You know, I've noticed over the years with with Christians, especially those who have come through this church, typically we have a really strong handle on the grace of God as it relates to our salvation experience. But many times, grace almost seems to be set aside as we process how to live righteously. There's often a sense that, you know, I really need to buckle down and I need to conquer the sin in my life through my own brute force and determination. I'm telling you, though, grace empowers a discipled and disciplined life. As we let the grace of God do its work in our lives, righteous living is the byproduct that then positions us to receive more of God's grace. That's the process of maturing. Things like prayer and Bible reading or fasting or giving don't have a scorecard attached to them, as though maturity in Christ is in direct proportion to the number of resources that we invest into the disciplines of faith. Grace empowers righteous living. It's not righteous living that earns us grace and gifts from God. Those gifts are free from God. Otherwise, they would be called wages for our efforts. If you're finding it difficult to, say, overcome a sin in your life, the solution isn't simply to try harder. You know, it can be so easy to fall into the trap of legalism as a Christian. We're aware in our own thoughts and minds and in our actions that we are out of step with God in some way, as articulated throughout his word, the Bible. And then we feel guilty or ashamed, and we want to punish ourselves for that behavior, thinking that it will cause a heart change, to attempt to beat ourselves into submission and holiness, if you will. But that's not God's design. His plan was Jesus who endured 
our punishment on the cross. In a spiritualist sense, then, we are unpunishable after we accept Jesus as Lord. Yes, I can still be put in prison if I break a law, but the punishment for my sin was placed on Jesus at the cross. He was punished in our place for all of our sin. And now I am forever clothed in the righteousness of Christ through my belief. We cannot punish ourselves into purity. That requires God's enabling grace. The grace of God isn't finished with us once we've accepted Jesus as our Savior. Grace describes the undeserved kindness by which salvation is given, but it also describes the Holy Spirit's operational means. It's not only God's unmerited favor, but also his enabling power in us. It's not through striving, but through surrender to the power of grace that we are able to live as Christians. Where the law put requirements on God's people, grace empowers. Remember verse 10 from Ephesians 2 that we read earlier. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. So we can do the good things, it says. That doesn't happen through punishing ourselves for something God has forgiven. You know, in the most extreme cases in the world, there are people who practice what's called self-flagellation. Because of the guilt and shame they feel for the sin they've committed, they'll whip themselves, both as a form of punishment, but also with the misguided idea that it will change their heart. Of course, most of us won't resort to that extreme, but we can be tempted to make rules and regulations to follow in a misguided attempt to earn God's favor. And in some cases, it's with the misguided notion that we need to behave to keep God from pulling his love from us or from losing our salvation. Telling you today, you were saved by grace and you are kept saved by grace. It's not our performance that keeps us saved. It doesn't somehow shift to relying on your good works to keep you in right standing with God. We cannot earn his holiness by works any more than we can earn his forgiveness. You know, these principles of grace are best illustrated in the life of Jesus himself. You know, when I last preached, we talked about the story of Mary and Joseph losing Jesus when he was about 12 years old. You know, you'll remember that I said, Mary and Joseph, you can imagine the terror of that moment. They looked at each other when they realized that they had lost Jesus. And you can imagine them saying, you know, you had one job, raise God. And then they lost him. You lost God along the way. You know, they found him three days later in the temple. And he said the now famous words to them in Luke chapter 2. Or Luke chapter two. Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Immediately following that incident, Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 50 says, Then he returned, this is Jesus, to Nazareth with them, which is a, the them is Mary and Joseph, of course, and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. You know, that word favor in verse 52 is the same Greek word, charis, used for grace. So you could read that, that verse to say, Jesus grew in grace with God and all the people. 
which means Jesus wasn't full of God's grace at 12 years old, but it increased during his life. You know, I hope that twists your brain a little bit, like it does mine. I feel like my brain gets twisted into a pretzel as I contemplate that idea. You know, it's easy to rationalize why Jesus would need to grow in grace with people. Maybe, you know, we could think to ourselves he had to grow in trust with the people around him and therefore increase in favor. But still, it begs the question, why would Jesus need to grow in grace with God? You know, that's a sermon on its own, but for today, I just want us to agree that if Jesus needed to grow in grace with the Father, certainly we do too. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On a very practical level, I believe one of the critical components to Jesus growing in grace was his humility. From that moment when he was 12 years old, it was still another 18 years until his ministry really started. He humbled himself under the authority of his earthly parents. Growing in grace begins with the position of our hearts. It requires a humble heart. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 5, says, In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you, dress yourself, yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. You know, sometimes people who are facing opposition and difficult circumstances will say, you know, the enemy is, and the demonic realm, they're really opposing me. You know, that, that might be true in some cases, but it also might be true that God might be opposing us at certain points. If there's the presence of pride and a lack of humility in us, we are choking off the flow of God's grace into our lives. Romans 12 and 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We may be under the influence of pride, if we believe that we have all the answers or if we're the, the smartest person in the room all of the time. But on the flip side, it isn't humility to think too little of ourselves either. Humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. Acceptance of Jesus as Lord and Savior, it requires humility. It's acknowledging that I can't save myself. I need someone to rescue me. I can't do it on my own. That's what Jesus offers to us. He demonstrated humility, of course, in a variety of ways. The, the, the best example, of course, is the humility he demonstrated while he died on the cross. But he demonstrated it in other ways as well in his ministry, including subjecting himself to baptism by John the Baptist. You know, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. John's was a baptism of repentance. Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was sinless. But he nevertheless humbled himself to that baptism as an act of obedience to the Father. And as he rose from the water, the Father's voice boomed out with affirmation. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. 
Immediately following that moment, Jesus again submitted himself to the leading of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. He wasn't striving for the Father's acceptance by his accomplishments. He hadn't performed a single miracle yet in that moment. But the Father was already well pleased with him. Why? Because Jesus was living from his identity as a son and humbly submitted himself in obedience to the will of the Father and systematically grew in grace. Jesus, of course, didn't need to repent, but we certainly do. Regardless of our performance, we are always dependent on God's grace. Our worst days are never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace, and our best days are never so good that we're beyond the need for God's grace. You know, in the same way we came to Christ by grace in humility to accept his offer of salvation, we maintain that flow of grace through regular repentance. Repentance is one of the highest privileges of a Christian. God gives us a gateway to ongoing freedom and strength through humility, acknowledging where our behavior is out of step with his ways, and we confess our sins. We don't whip ourselves because of our sin. We repent and confess. And God's miraculous grace enables a change in our heart where our desires for things that draw us away from him grow less and less. You know, it's the same principle as someone coming to an altar for prayer or reaching out to you for prayer. It's an act of humility to stand and say, I need help, especially when you're in the church and you have to stand up from your chair and make that long walk to the altar. It's a jump-in-the-wheelbarrow type moment, if you will, that activates your faith in humility, and God responds. God loves you exactly the way you are, and he loves you so much that he won't leave you that way. He prompts us in our spirits to come to reach out in humility for help when we need it. You know, I can't be punished into an abundant life. Only God's grace can accomplish that. You know, today as I close, I felt the Lord really prompt me to to declare that it's his amazing grace alone that will empower change in the most difficult, impossible circumstances that we'll face in our lives. And while that applies to every impossible, difficult circumstance, I really feel like he highlighted one area in particular to me today. You know, there are many people in our world today who are wrestling with their sexuality and their gender identity. And there are many who have made the choice to behave in a way that's contrary to, to leverage that phrase again from earlier, Christian virtues, to, um, you know, as I said, to leverage that, that verse or the, the definition that we had in Karis. You know, in, in their desperation to find an answer to those issues, Christians have made, in some cases, the poor decision to attempt to change someone's heart through external punishments. You know, if we believe that we can shame and punish someone into a heart change, then we need a greater revelation of the grace of God. Someone might be able to be humiliated into adjusting their behavior for a season, but a change of heart can only be facilitated by the enabling power of the grace of God. It's only God's grace that empowers righteous living in all of us, 
We cannot punish someone into purity. You know, of course, the Bible has much to say about our gender and our sexuality. We can't create our own definition of sin and begin to call something good that God calls sin in the misguided attempt to keep the peace. That's not grace. But in the same way that we acknowledge that we can only be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's enabling grace, let's apply that same thinking to the heart change that's required for all of us to align our behaviors to Christian virtues and not think that we can change someone from the outside in through brute force and determination. You know, as I pray to close, I just really want you to partner with me in this moment. If you have an impossible situation, or you're even aware of somebody who is going through those challenging, wrestling moments of fighting through what they really believe about sexuality and sexual identity, their gender identity, that God's enabling grace is available for you as you would interact with people who are processing through that, and certainly God's enabling grace is there in the hearts of the folks that are going through those questions themselves. If you or someone you know is stuck in some deep hole and uh, is not able seemingly to get out, I want you to know that we have hope because of the grace of God. God gives grace to the humble, as we humble ourselves to say, Lord, use me as an instrument of reconciliation in those and every other circumstance. To say, Lord, I need you. I acknowledge in humility that I can't make the necessary change. Only your amazing grace can facilitate that change. Let's pray. Lord, I am just so thankful for your great love that while we were all dead in our trespasses, Jesus, you came to die on the cross for our sin. God, I just pray, I'm, I'm also thankful, Lord, that it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. You're the one that po points out the areas in our hearts and in our thoughts where we're out of step with you. And it's then only you, Lord, that can lead us back to the path of righteousness. Yes, we have to choose to do it, but that choice is enabled by your grace through the Holy Spirit. So God, I just pray for everyone, Lord, that would make a decision today to partner with your grace, God. I pray for breakthrough into impossible situations in the same way that we pray for breakthrough for healing because of the shed blood of the cross of Calvary. I pray, Lord, for breakthrough in impossible relationship issues, for anyone who feels like they're even trapped under the heaviness of a habitual sin, God, that it isn't trying harder that's going to change it, Lord. It's a surrender to your grace to do the work necessary in our hearts, God. So I just pray a blessing on each one as they journey with you through that process, God. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this week. You know, if you want to reach out to the church and have a conversation with myself or one of the other pastors, we would love to meet with you and chat. And especially if you're able to join us in the weeks ahead at one of our in-person services, we'd love to just be able to say hello and um, get to know you just a little bit better. So God bless you this week. Take care.